You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Now, as the last year in the life of this church has led us through the gospel of John, uh, the, for us, the liturgy of our, or the rhythm of our church has brought us so that February the 2nd was, uh, according to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12 was for us a celebration of Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry of Jesus happened some eight chapters ago. And as is the custom of all of the Gospel writers, in this case the Apostle John, the eyewitness and best friend of Jesus, they slow down. And this is where the movie goes into slow motion. And so for the last eight chapters... John has slowed down and zoomed in to this event, this monumental occurrence that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, as I share with you, I hopefully on a regular basis, for us celebrating Easter, I, I hope, in, in some ways, I hope, just, just a little bit, I hope you were a little bit disappointed today. I hope, I hope, I hope today, like, like, like today's an appetizer, not, not, not like a basket of chips and salsa that you fill up on and you're not even hungry, Right? But for us, this is an appetizer where we leave going like, man, I, I, want, I want more. I, I want Jesus himself. And so for us, Easter, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, I would encourage you, is not a special day in the life of our church. My hope is that it's like, it's, it's every Sunday, every single day, we live in light of the resurrected Jesus. Now, the, the analogy I use here, and this might step on your toes, I hope, maybe a little, but like, it's kind of like for you, maybe if, if you only show love to your significant other on, on February the 14th, that is Valentine's Day, you kind of betray who you really are the other 364 days of the year, don't you? You kind of out yourself. And if you go all out to show your love to your spouse or that significant other on February the 14th, there's a sense in which you, you leave that person wondering, like, is this, is this just once a year? Or like, what, what about the other days? And so my hope is, now again, that's side note, especially guys, look, you t- take her out on Valentine's Day, her birthday, uh, your anniversary, the, the date of your first kiss, the date of your first date, the date of the, uh, the first time, I, I, you, you do this, right? This is, this is what love and affection is. And my hope that as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we're simply invited into a routine that frankly, we're called to every single Sunday, Every single Sunday. That is the first day of the week. Not the seventh, not Saturday, not the Sabbath, where we would have celebrated as a, a covenant people chosen by God that he is going to give us rest and hope. But, but then all of a sudden, something happened 2,000 years ago that you and I have to contend with, that now we're not gathered together on a Saturday, but on a Sunday, because something happened on the first day of the week. So I'm going to begin reading to you out of chapter 19 so that we begin to see all of this in context. We'll read chapter 19 beginning in verse 31, and we'll read all the way to verse 18 of chapter 20, thinking about not only what we celebrate this Lord's Day, but what we get to celebrate or invited to commemorate every single first day of the week. So beginning in verse 31 of John chapter 19. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. 
But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who he had reached, who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he that is Jesus must, ri must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know what it, that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go. Tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he said these things to her. My hope today is to invite you to believe in the risen Savior. My hope is to invite you to believe in the risen Christ. Up to this point, John, one of the twelve apostles, an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, has been introducing us to Jesus. And the way specifically he has introduced us to Jesus, especially in the last eight to ten chapters, is that he comes to Jerusalem in the last week of his life on earth as a king. A king. And so he comes with a triumphal entry when, and people yell, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the other gospel writers tell us he comes and they begin to want to anoint him as king as like he's going to come and sit on the throne of David. The, the good old days, back when David was king. This is what this new king is going to bring. And it's meant to call to mind all of the imagery of an anointing of a king. Including right after that, or, or right during that. Remember what, what happened? He comes in as king at the same time that Mary, Magdalene we find here, who's been delivered from an amazing oppression of demons, does what? Anoints Jesus with a salary's worth of special perfume. Meant to give us the picture. Not only is Jesus coming in as an entering and conquering king, but he's being anointed as an entering and conquering king. Now these people would have been very familiar with that imagery of a coming king. And so when John tells us that this new king is coming and he zooms into the entrance, uh, the entry of this king into Jerusalem, he also carries with it all the assumptions that most of us would have about a coming king if we'd been reading this for the first time. Because one of the other things that a conquering king would come and do is he would drag in the defeated king. Either the defeated king would be dead and they'd be dragging the remains of maybe the body, the dismembered, quartered body along, or at the very, you know, you know, caught dead or alive, the conquered king would be stripped naked and drugged behind the conquering king. And the next thing he would do, there would be incense being burned, a celebration of this victory, and the conquering king would bring along the plunder, the booty, everything that he would have stolen from the conquered king he would be passing out to his people, the people he loves the most. He'd be passing out to strangers. They'd be throwing out the spoils of victory, the spoils of war. And so up to this point, John has been introducing us over the last several chapters to Jesus as this coming king. People don't quite get it. They don't quite know what to do. And he introduces us to the victory of Jesus over death. And what's the first thing that he does? He spreads the plunder. And what's the first gift that he grants? Did you catch it? Faith. Faith. If you want to, you can, we, we've called back to this multiple times, but if you want to, at the very end of chapter 20, look with me. John summarizes the entirety of the purpose of his whole book, and he says in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That is to say, we could fill the life of Jesus and the works of Jesus and, and a multitude of libraries. That's not my goal here, but what does he say is his goal in verse 31? But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may, what? Have life in 
his name. And the first thing that Jesus brings as the conquering king who is put to death, death, is the plunder of faith. The plunder of faith. Now the next couple of weeks we'll see the way he hands that to the other disciples, even to Thomas, and he appears to the other of the followers. But, but in this case, the very first eyewitness, the first one to receive this remarkable encounter with Jesus is Mary. Mary. And I want you to see through this chapter and even through the chapters to come that the faith, that faith in the risen Christ involves a personal encounter with Jesus. And for Mary and for us, hearing him call your own name. Faith in the risen Christ involves a personal encounter with Jesus, Jesus himself, and then hearing him call your very own name. And we see in this chapter what we would call maybe the anatomy of faith in Jesus. And so maybe if you're in this room and, and you come as a skeptic, and maybe you would say, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a believer, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really glad you're here. Even John, over the course of the, our walk through the gospel, has been introducing us to Jesus by introducing us to people who don't believe in Jesus either. Even some of the people who were closest to Jesus didn't quite get him. And so if you come into this room with skepticism and questions, I'm really glad you're here. Because that's exactly, as you saw, what Jesus, or excuse me, what the uh, Apostle John means to answer. He means to draw us in with our questions. So maybe even if you're in this room and you're just full of doubt, can this be real? Can Jesus really be who he says he is? I'm so glad you're here because John lets us know the anatomy of faith, what it is to really and truly trust in Jesus. And then as he says at the end of the chapter, to experience life, the good life, the eternal life, not just life in terms of our own 10, 20 to 80 years, but life in light of eternity. And we see the aspects of faith, the anatomy of faith here. I'm going to walk you through some of the things that we see that Jesus invites the people who encounter him in his resurrected self and then we're invited to experience as well. Faith begins with reasoning and yet it is completely inconceivable. It's deeply personal and it's even foundational. But it involves risk. It involves a relinquishing of power. Now they all had seen Jesus before. All the people Jesus encounters. And this chapter, first it's Mary. But Mary already knew Jesus. She'd met him. She'd heard his teaching, experienced his miraculous works. They knew him. And yet, something strange is apparent here. They knew Jesus, but they weren't changed. It isn't, they hadn't fully encountered what it is that Jesus came to accomplish. And the reason is they hadn't beheld the risen Christ, the risen Jesus. And that's important because most people would think that they can know Jesus just by knowing his moral teachings or, or even knowing and trusting that Jesus has the ability to do magical, miraculous things for them. And most people, if they were to, to describe to you who Jesus is and, and what he's like, would probably use some derivative of those, of those two answers. Some great teacher. I love, his, I love the principles he taught and the justice and the fairness, equality and mercy. I love all of that. Or maybe I, I love that he's a miracle worker. He gives us, he, he, may have, he may have even healed me or done something magical or mysterious or miraculous. But they don't quite encompass who Jesus is. And John slows down and zooms in on these moments so that we would see Jesus in his resurrected body as the foundation of our faith. 1 Corinthians 15 would even tell us that if, if we haven't seen Christ risen, if we don't really believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, then we don't really have life. 
And we who are calling ourselves Christians, if we haven't encountered Jesus and believe that He really is alive and here, then we above all people should be pitied. More than anyone else. If you want to feel sorry, oh, poor, oh that, poor, that poor fellow. The people who believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, if He has not, are the worst. We should be pitied above all. And you should leave saying, oh, that was cute. That guy up in the front was really exuberant, but poor guy. Because if they haven't encountered the risen Christ, they haven't encountered Christ at all. And real faith, real trust, begins with a reasoning, but it's utterly impossible and inconceivable for us to accomplish on our own. It's deeply personal, and it is completely foundational. They all knew Him. Mary, above all, knew Jesus intimately, but somehow couldn't conceive of Him doing what He said He was going to do to lay down His life and take it up again. So I want you to begin to walk through the text with me. I want, you to show, I want to show you this anatomy of faith that we experience in the resurrection of Jesus. Peter, one of the disciples that first saw the emptiness of the tomb, puts it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He is what caused us to be born again to a living hope. By what means? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So don't miss what Simon Peter is telling us. All the good things that we experience, God's great mercy, this new life, a a hope in the midst of hopelessness come through what? Jesus' victory over death. The way I shared it with my daughters even this morning, and the way I would invite you to consider as we walk through what real faith and the risen Christ is, is simply this. If God raised Jesus from the dead, what can't He do? If God really raised Jesus from the dead, what else might he be able to do? So first we see in verse 6, after the first few verses, we see an outline of, of this kind of, the, the, I'll say the setup of, of this encounter. Mary, at the very first day of the week, now don't miss, she says, early, we find out, now all the gospel writers tell us this, that's meant to be a callback all the way back to some of the most monumental moments in the entirety of the Bible, all the way back to Genesis 22, when, when Abraham takes Isaac up to be slain, and yet what happens? A lamb it takes his place and delivers this child, this son of Abraham, right? When did they set off? Early in the morning. Early in the morning. Right? When, when, when Elisha encounters an army, when the chariots of fire, what, what happens? They arose early. This is, this is a theme that is recurring throughout the Old Testament and is carried to the New. When, whenever you see those words like, and they got up early, or it happened early in the morning, all you're meant to do is to go, what, 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 wait? God's going to do something. Something's about to happen. So it says they got up early. Think of it the way I, the analogy I use always is like Christmas, right? You don't have to set an alarm for your children to wake up on Christmas morning, Right? Did you get it? There's this anticipation. There's this expectation. God's going to do something. She rises early while it was even still dark and saw that the stone, the first we hear of it according to, according to John's gospel, had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and, and she went and found Simon Peter and the other disciple. And we're meant to hear the other disciple as John. And he even tells us again, this is the not the first time, but this John, this apostle, is the one whom Jesus loved. And he said to them, they, 
Did you get that? This is their explanation. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know what they've done with him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the disciple, excuse me, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Side note, this is fun. This is a fun fact of, of John. We see the son of thunder here. Uh, when we were walking through John chapter 4, the woman at the well, there's an amazing, miraculous encounter with Jesus where Jesus first reveals himself not to, not to the religious elite, but the outcasts, and, and takes uh, an, an encounter with this woman who was hiding. And, and the thing that she most wanted to keep a secret, Jesus exposed and took the thing that she most wanted to hide and made that thing that she was the most ashamed of, the, the source of the most reproach and condemnation, became the thing that she wanted to tell everyone first. She ran back into, after encountering Jesus, back into the city, the place where she was likely an outcast, and said, what? Come meet a man who did what? Told me everything I ever knew. And so one of the practices of, of Christians, and we exercise this in gospel community, is to regularly reflect on our sense of identity that's revealed in the thing that you want to slide into every single conversation. You know, the thing that makes your friends annoyed. Right? They could, he, well, he's that. Hi, I'm so-and-so. And you're like, by the way, did you know I am? Right? By the way, I graduated from this. Right? And yet the gospel calls the thing that, that we're the, the most proud of to be considered like it's foolishness and the thing that we're most ashamed of is now a source of great healing and hope and reconciliation. Now, I asked a gospel community and my friend Eric, a gospel community leader of ours, what is it that I try to work into every conversation? And he let me know. One of the things that I try to work into every conversation that I seem to want everyone to know about me is that I'm fast. <laughs> and evidently, and some of you are like, yeah, he said that. Evidently, I kind of try to work that into the conversation. Now, there's one reason for that, I would say. It's because at most of my life, I found my identity as an athlete. And so even now, as I feel like my body aging and like, like becoming less of an athlete by the moment, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's an identity coming out there, right? Trying to cling like, hey, I, still, I don't want you to think I'm old and decrepit, even though I kind of am. Like I'm nursing an injury that we don't know the cause of, right? You, this is, you know this? I don't know why it hurts, but it does, right? And so on one hand, I work that into the conversation because you can see I'm still wrestling with my identity as an athlete. I want you to think I'm athletic. But on the other hand, and as I should have said, I'm just being biblical. Did you catch what John did? twice he said we were running to the tomb and he throws in this fun fact as we were running the other disciple and he uses two words outran peter and he uses the, the word treco for run and he adds the word pros which means the best and so he's like i pros treco i ran the best and then he adds first which is that is to say most quickly and so he literally said, and the other disciple, I mean, we won't name him. We all know who he is, right? Uh, the super fast, quick disciple outran Peter. Now, we don't know if he's just making a knock at Peter. Maybe this is like one of those things where they get together and they celebrate the resurrection. Like, remember that time when Jesus uh, was resurrected from the dead? Oh, yeah, I remember. Who, 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 who was it that was slow that day? Who's the, who, oh, it's you, Peter, the outspoken one. And that isn't it. He even says it again. Did you catch it? He threw it in one more time in verse 8. Then the other disciple, who, who, who which, which, what's the other disciple? Which, what other disciple, John? Oh, the one who got there the most quickly. The one who got there first. 
Don't you love, I, I want you to see the eyewitness nature of this. I want you to see the character and nature of John here, the beloved disciple. I want you to love him and trust him. He's just like us. Throws in little fun facts so that we'll think highly of him. But then they do something. They get to where they're running, and it says they looked in in verse 5. In verse 6, he stooped to look in, and then verse 5, and then verse 6, then Peter came following, and he went into the tomb, and he saw. Now, this it's really interesting, the, the look, the seeing there. Now, there are words in the New Testament that we regularly translate to look or to see, blepo or idu, idon, but that's not the word here. The word that is used here that John tells us when they looked into the tomb is theoreo. Theoreo. Now, I don't even have to tell you, some of you word nerds, that's where we get our word theorem. They weren't just looking and observing. They were theorizing. Did you catch their theory? They started the theory. He, he saw what? The linen cloths lying there, but, but they were lying in a peculiar fashion. And there was a face cloth which had been lying on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And so the first thing they do when they see it is they begin to sit back and try to rationalize and understand. Now, I want to encourage you. One of the, one of the worst misconceptions of faith and a risen Jesus that is out there is that we simply come to Jesus with the phrase that isn't biblical, blind faith. Right, that we just turn our brains off. Well, Jesus tells us regularly, look, you're going to love the Lord your God not only with your heart and your being, but also with your mind. God isn't hoping that we would just like turn off the way He's worked our brains to operate, but instead, it says they theoreo, they begin to theorize about what it is that they're seeing. And they already, according to, to John here, when he did this, when he went in and saw it, it was, did you catch in verse 8, the beginnings of genuine belief. It was the theorizing that led him to really believe that Jesus might have taken up his life again like he said he would. Now don't miss that. That's, that's profound. Because they, there was something about the, the laying or, the, or the, the formation of those linens. Now, first, it's meant to be a callback, right? All the way back to John chapter 10 and chapter 11, when Jesus resurrected his friend Lazarus on the fourth day. And as Lazarus came forth, what happens? He walked, kind of stumbled like a mummy out of the tomb, still wrapped in the linen. And we're meant to go, oh yeah, that was meant to be an appetizer. That was meant to be preparation for Jesus. What he says next is, I, in fact, am the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection. Come to me and you will find life in light of eternity. And we're meant to be a callback here of like, man, I remember the, the grave clothes on Lazarus. It was, like an, it, was, it was like an appetizer for something. And we're meant, John says here, apparently to go, ah, the grave clothes again. But there's something special about these. And they begin to theorize about it. Most likely it seems that they were simply laying there along with the spices and that gave them pause. Now this I want to invite you to theorize as well, because after all, if they're friends, if a, if a friend of, the, of Jesus would have come and stolen the body, right? if he hadn't actually raised from the dead, and actually just someone stole his body, if the friends stole his body, they would have never desecrated the body or dishonored the body by stealing him naked. I mean, think of it. That just that would never have happened. They wouldn't have gone and like, unwrapped Jesus' body, and then walked off with Jesus' dead body naked. It just wouldn't, no one would desecrate or dishonor the body in that way. 
But if the enemies of Jesus had come to steal the body, like to, to kind of undermine what was going on, why on earth would they stop and take the time to like lay, lay the clothing, the, the grave clothes, the linen wrapped around him, and even the face that was over Jesus? Why would they stop and lay that around? Neither of these things add up. Certainly don't add up for John, the beloved disciple, who was wicked fast twice in the same i mean come on and what does he say and his theorizing did you did you catch it something going on there and he said oh my i believe jesus might actually be who he says he is and the beginnings of faith stir up in the beloved apostle that is john but i love his humility mixed with his bragging about his foot speed. Did you catch that? Right? The guy who got there first in verse 8, he saw and he believed, but then he, he shows humility. He's like, well, why is that important? Because in verse 9, he tells us, because as yet, at that point anyway, at this juncture, they didn't really understand the Scripture. That in fact, he must rise from the dead. And so then the disciples went back to their home. The second thing I think we see, faith in the risen Christ seeks to gain understanding. Remember, the theorizing, we don't turn off our brain, but instead reason begins to open our minds to the possibility of something happening. But when we add to it understanding, and I love John's humility here, he says, and at that point they didn't even fully understand. But later added to their faith, their encounter with this mystery added to their faith was understanding, specifically the Scriptures. Now, there's a, there's a ton of these to look through, but I'll just list to you some of my favorite. Now, later, or, or we see one of, the, one of my favorites was we walk through the gospel, or excuse me, as, we, as, as we've seen in the, as the gospel of Matthew, and as we walk through the book of Jonah, in Matthew chapter 12, what is Jesus' declaration over all the people who were turning against him? He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, right? Do, do a dance for us, monkey. Make, make some magic happen. Work some miracles. But what does he say? But no sign will be given to it except what? The sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what does Jesus say? You want a sign? Do you want a real sign of who I am? He says, you wait, because the sign you will get isn't the sign you want. It will be the sign of Jonah. And on the third day, in the same way that that fish miraculously and mysteriously spat out Jonah where he was meant to be all along, so also in some mysterious fashion that, that fish made us hunger for Jesus such that after three days in the grave, he spits you and I out to where God wants us to be all along. We saw this when we were walking through the prophet Hosea, chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. How? And what to, for what, to what end? That he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, will he revive us? On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Did you catch it? They're, they're, they didn't yet understand. They didn't yet get it. They had, had some theories, but they added to their faith understanding. 2 Kings 20. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, this prophecy for these people from Elisha, thus says the Lord, the God 
of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. I don't know. I, you just, you just, I love the, the empathy that, and the compassion that not only the angels, but Jesus first say, why are you crying? Listen to the, this is what this prophecy is. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my own sake and for my own servant David's sake. Esther chapter 5 in the verse first. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite to the entrance of the palace. And she was there doing what? Facing possibly her own death. Faith in the risen Christ adds to it understanding. It seeks to gain understanding. Don't miss that. John throws that in there for good measure that as yet they didn't fully understand, but at some point they began to understand. And I would encourage you, that's exactly what we're called to be and to do as well. We consider on our own rational minds all sorts of possibilities, but then we add to what we declare to be true in Christ understanding. This is the more difficult one we see in verse 13. Faith in the risen Christ is inconceivable. You see, rationalizing and thinking of reasonable and possible outcomes is an introduction, but, but rationalizing and reasoning our way into possible outcomes only gets us to probability. It does not get us to certainty. It only gets us to probability. It does not get us to certainty. Why is that? Well, verse 13 at least tells us uh, as we encounter the risen Christ, Mary is weeping outside. She's, she sees two angels and they said what? Woman, why are you weeping? And then notice what she does. Notice what she says. She points to us the inconceivability, the impossibility of faith by showing us what she genuinely trusts. And you see, unbelief or the, or the lack of belief and trust in Christ as Lord, as the risen Savior who will come again, isn't the absence of all belief. It isn't. So if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, there's, there's not an absence of belief. It's simply the present presence of another deeper belief. It is a tightly held belief in something else. Unbelief is not the absence of faith but instead it's a deep belief in something else. Did you catch the thing that she trusted in the most? The thing that she defaulted to? They. They. Woman, why are you crying? I love the words here, remember? This is, it's meant to be a callback again, all these things coming together. Woman, you would think that's a rude term, right? But, but it's a callback, right? From Jesus in the first two chapters when he looks at his mom and says, Madam, about the about the wine that he is uh, to create out of, out of water. And then he says it again to the woman at the well, madam, a term of honor to a woman who certainly had been dishonored and insulted all the way to the point when he creates a new covenant community in the last chapter and he looks at his mom from the cross and says, madam, woman, behold your son. He's going to take care of you now. You have a new supernatural community that supersedes and is transformatively greater than any blood relative you ever have known. And he does it again here twice. Madam, ma'am, who are you looking for? One of the things you see here is that the resurrection of Jesus exposes what we truly trust in. 
Let me hammer on that for just a moment. The, the, the thing that you really trust in, the most likely outcome, that if you're really honest with yourself, you blame everything on. Now, she's already done this before, hasn't she? Whenever Jesus came, after her brother Lazarus has died, what's the first thing she and her brother did? Do you remember? Jesus, with all due respect, had you been here, my brother would not have died. Did you get it? In face of adversity, she explains things, probably regularly, with this word, they. Why are you crying? And her, and her words, notice here, it show us what she really believes in. What does she really believe in? She really believes in the evil of Jesus' enemies. And we do the same thing. And the resurrection exposes that. Ask yourself this question. If this is a hoax, if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, what's, what's the most tempting explanation you tend to lean on? And I would encourage you to think seriously about it because I bet that's the way, in some form or fashion, you explain everything. Mine is that it would be some great conspiracy, right? Now, don't get me wrong, you have to believe in another set of miracles that that like a group of people kept a secret, and I don't know if you know this, but whenever you lie, uh, when they try to kill you, you usually, usually give up on the lie, right? No one ever takes the lie to the death, right? They're like, recant or die, and most people are like, okay, you're right, he did it, right? It wasn't me, it was him. Like, people strike deals like this all the time. Uh, my favorite, it's a quote from Chuck Colson, who, who's one of the original, uh, original members and conspirators of Watergate, and and as he, he, he heard the gospel while in prison, and he shares this, he says, I, I'm certain that the resurrection is a fact. And, and actually, my experience of Watergate and that conspiracy proved it to me. How? He says, because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years and never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and even put in prison. They would not have endured that were it not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me three of the 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? That's absolutely impossible. And so my theory, if I were to be honest, Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. I'm, I probably would say something like, this is a conspiracy, and, and these people are all keeping together a big lie. But I want you to see right through those to my own heart, my own disposition. It's one of bitterness. It's one of doubt. It's one of disappointment. And so therefore I look for someone to blame. And the resurrection shows me something, not just maybe where I'm prone to doubt, but it also shows me what I'm prone to trust in. And in the darkest moments, what I really believe is true, what I really depend on, and what I really know to be real is that I'm a cynical person because people let you down. People lie to you. People disappoint you. Did you catch what Mary was believing in there? What she really believed got the last word? Madam, why are you crying? And she says, because they took his body. You hear it? They do stuff like that. They have a tendency to always do evil things like that. Bad things like this always happen. 
This is how stories always end. So I want to encourage you to begin to reflect. What does the resurrection of Jesus expose that you really trust in? What's the most plausible alternative to the resurrected Jesus as Lord and Savior of the world? And I want to encourage you, that's probably the thing you default to trust in all the time. And so if I tell you something like Jesus is someone you can trust in, you may default and say you can't trust anyone. And what you're really saying is what? I'm deeply hurt because people have left me, abandoned me. Don't miss the resurrection exposes what we truly believe. And for her, for her multiple times, she says they. Jesus confronts what she genuinely and deeply believes in. But she, he also does something really powerful. And, and this, is, this is even more amazing. In verse 16, we see that faith in the risen Jesus involves a personal encounter with him. He confronts that false narrative. And the way he introduces him to sell, himself to her, notice, he says, like, he addresses her weeping and her mourning. I love that. I love the compassion Jesus comes to us. And most of us who would call ourselves Christians would, would, would really, as we reminisce and reflect, we, we, we would be reminded that meeting Jesus first involved Jesus kind of saying, like, hey, what's the problem? <laughs> How can I help? What's your deepest need, deepest wound, deepest hurt? And he does that with her. But then he says, hey, who are you looking for? Why are you crying? And then she gives him her explanation. Look, they came and got her. But what's his response in verse 16? Notice he doesn't say, it's me. To a very real extent, what does he do? He says, it's you. He doesn't just reveal himself, but in a strange way, he confronts her false identities. He confronts her false beliefs. Not just by saying, it's me, but mostly, as we see here, just by calling her by name and saying, no, it's you. And he reveals, reveals himself, get this, by revealing her. He shows her himself by naming her. Calling her by name. Now, I, I, my guess is, that there was an inflection, a tone. Some of you know this. Your tone carries more weight than anything else, right? There's a, my wife has this power, right? She can say something with a tone, and he can either crush and destroy, or it can revive and bring life, right? Right? Same word, baby. <laughs> Whoa. What, 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 what I do? Or, baby. Oh, yes, 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 dear, right? Uh, two, same word, different tone. And notice, I, I suspect there's, there was maybe, we, we don't get it here, but you've got you've to inspect the text here and assume the way that Jesus said her name sparked something in her. And then she throws on him an honorific term, Rabboni, an Aramaic term, a, a term of endearment, dear teacher, even. I invite you to, to begin to think about it because I want you to think about what it is that Jesus is doing here is, is the way that you probably have encountered him. Maybe he was stern, right? That's for some of us, if we encounter Jesus, our first encounter with him and as he reveals us is a, is a sternness, a, rever a revelation of our own sin and idolatry. And, and maybe he says, Mary. And maybe that's a tone he's used with her before and she knew right away, oh, I know this one. Maybe it was just simply a soft and gentle term. 
Mary. I like to think that maybe there's almost a, a maternal or paternal tone to this. Mary. <laughs> right? Like the kind of lovingly, Mary, come on. Come on. Come on. But notice whatever it is, there's something in his voice that calls back to her attention. Now this ought, to, this ought to grab you. This ought to be something for us. He already told us this chapter is early, right? Chapter, chapters earlier, he said, look, there's a flock and there's a gatekeeper and my sheep, what? They know the shepherd by his voice. And friend, don't miss this. Jesus comes to Mary and I would argue he comes to you and me and speaks to us in a way, an intimate tone and calls us by name. And there's something in his tone, something in his posture. And it's different for each of us. It's probably different for Mary than it is for me. And that tone lets us know, oh, that's the voice of the good shepherd. He's got a crook, but it's not to punish me. It's to keep me close to him. He's got a rod, but it's not to harm me. It's to beat the enemy. Did you get like This is the voice of the good shepherd. And whatever it was, he spoke to her in the tone and the posture he took grabbed her attention. And she runs after him. It's a personal encounter. It's more than just knowing the teachings and the words of Jesus and being able to quote him at the right time. It's knowing that when in doubt, you hear his voice. You've seen him face to face. Next verse, we find a couple of things packed in and I'll land on these. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended the Father, but... Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Now, there's this real paradox, right? He's like, don't cling to me. Don't, don't, don't hold tightly to me, but instead go. And his first explanation is, don't cling to me because I've not yet ascended to the Father. Now, now, this is interesting because most people create a bunch of theories like, well, maybe he was kind of like not fully taken form in the flesh, and so he was kind of like maybe ghost-like. Now, now, this leads to what we would call Gnosticism, but it's also even disproven in the rest of the text. For the rest of the chapter, what does he invite Thomas do? to do? Touch me. Touch my resurrected physical body. This is not a spiritual thing. This is an embodied spirit. This is, this is real flesh taken on by Jesus. And, and so it can't be that he's like, don't touch me because I'm not really fully physically whole. But he says something, don't touch me because what? I haven't yet ascended. And, and the word there, cling, is the operative word. Don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. And notice what he's saying. You don't need to cling to me until I have ascended. One, it's as if to say, once I have ascended, then cling to me. Now again, this should be a callback for us. Remember when he told in his farewell discourse to his disciples, look, I'm going to go to the Father, and it's actually going to be to your benefit. The other gospel writers tell us this. They're like, greater things than these miracles I've accomplished will you see when I go to the Father. What does he say? I'm going to leave so that another advocate's going to come. I'm going to advocate, I'm going to advocate for your sin on the cross but then I'm going to bring you another advocate and he's going to stay and advocate, advocate for you between you and the Father forever. I'm not going to leave you alone. In fact, it's better that I go to the Father because I'm never going to leave you. My spirit will be present with you. And it's as if he's saying, well, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. Seemingly to tell us that 
Once he's returned to the Father, then, then and only then will we cling to him. And while it seems counterintuitive, Christians know this to be true. When Jesus says, it's to your benefit that I leave, another advocate is coming, what is he saying? Cling to me when I'm gone. Don't cling to me now. And you get the sense that maybe, maybe what's going on here is Mary is holding on to Jesus. Remember her, her, like her, her false trusts maybe coming to the surface? Maybe she's holding him thinking to herself, never leave me again, Jesus. I thought I'd lost you. I'm never going to let go of you again. And what does Jesus say? Don't, no. The fact that I'm physically here isn't your hope fact that I will ascend and go to the right hand of the Father and reign over all things forever, that's your hope. I restored you to the Father. Don't cling to me now. I'm not going to leave you. Don't hope in me just because I'm right here within your physical grasp. Hope in me because I will never, ever leave you. I mean, isn't that the failure of the chief priests and the Romans who turned Jesus over, they couldn't physically grasp the kingdom that he was bringing. And so they had to throw him on a cross. As if to say, if holding on to my physical body is all you've got, then you don't get it. Because the second reason we see is in the but. Did you catch that? But instead of clinging on to me for dear life, as though I'm going to abandon you, do what? But instead, go. Go. Don't cling to me. I'm not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them. We see this in the Gospel of Matthew as well. The first thing Jesus does when he reveals his resurrected self to his followers is what? He gives them a proclamation. He gives them something to say. You see, faith in the risen Christ sets us on a proclamation mission. There's something mysterious. Not only is there a deeper hope, not just clinging to the physical body of Jesus, but trusting that he really is here and present with us. His promise is true. But there's something else here that real faith in the resurrected Jesus means that we don't stand around thinking about how we might hold onto the physical body and stand around thinking about what that only means for us. Instead, we experience this joy such that it animates us, uh, animates us and propels us out to share it. That is, that if your encounter with me is enough, and it's all you've got, then you don't really get it. Because the joy that I give you is too contagious to keep a secret. And I would argue, joy that you can keep under wraps, joy that you can keep a secret is no joy at all. And so he says, cling to me, not now, but cling to me in a way that overflows to your brothers. The other thing we see here is that Jesus gives resurrection gifts to the undeserving. I love it here. That I, I, I'll never get over this. If this were me, I would have said, Mary, go tell those cowards I'm back. Right? Every good back from the dead movie involves coming back for vengeance, right? I know some of you are really excited about a movie, and what's it called this week? The Avengers. Because when you come back from the dead, which is surely going to happen, <laughs> spoiler alert, I read the Bible, I don't know. I was, <laughs> the Matrix, Harry Potter, 
Gandalf, oh, wow, never saw that coming, right? <laughs> he ruined it. And yet we see here, like, the story of every single Back from the Dead zombie movie is that you come back with vengeance. You come back to kill someone. And especially you come back to deal with the people who betray you. Did you catch Jesus? <laughs> oh, Go tell my brothers. I know some of you lack faith and you're full of doubt, and yet Jesus doesn't come to shame you. He comes what? To welcome you. What does he say? And make sure you tell my brothers, because they're not going to believe you that I'm not mad. They're not, they're, surely they're going to feel full of shame. But what does he say? Tell my brothers and say to them what? I'm ascending to who? My father. We mean like my father and we're disowned? No, my father and your father to my God and your God. The same God and Father that brought me back from the dead has adopted you and given you new life. Faith in the risen Christ is receiving the gift, knowing that you're undeserving. For some of you in this room, that may be one of the most important aspects. A real encounter with Jesus is an awakening to his person and realizing that he should be coming back for vengeance. Because when he calls out Mary's name, there's something powerful there, right? I know you. I know you. I know everything about you. And yet you are fully loved and fully received. And for some of you, I want to, I want to encourage you, that don't take my word for it. Is it possible that today Jesus is calling your name? And the first experience of that might be what probably Mary felt and what the the apostles probably felt, which was a profound awareness of our own failure. But don't miss, while Jesus fully knows you, the worst day, the thing you did, that day you did it that you know you'll never ever live down, or even that day that someone did something to you that you can't get over, Jesus knows fully every detail of that moment and still fully says, you are mine. You are mine. You're my family. Would you possibly begin to even consider that Jesus right now is calling you out by name? And though he knows every single thing about you, he isn't coming for vengeance. He's coming for family. And he says to you and to me, brother, sister. Maybe he takes a special tone with you. Maybe he takes a special posture but I want you to consider, is it possible you hear his voice? And it's unlike any other voice you've heard. It's a voice that tells you you fully known and yet fully loved. You see, because if it's true that Jesus is risen from the dead, then what else is possible? If he's risen from the dead, then he's here to be met with. I want to declare to you a mystery that I pass on from 1 Corinthians 11 because this is the invitation to respond to the risen Christ. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells the New Testament church, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the day the Lord Jesus, excuse me, that the, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. He points out their failure. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and then did what? He said, this is what's going to happen to you. Like other oath formulas of the Old Testament, what does he say? He breaks the bread and he says, no, this 
is my body. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and after supper, supper, saying, again, to a bunch of cowards who betrayed him, this cup, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. What? Like, this is, this is going to be your blood when you fail me. No, he says, this is a new covenant, a new agreement that the Father has opened up for you. And now you do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim not our own death that we deserve, but we proclaim his death in our place. Don't miss the resurrection victory that we celebrate today has tangible evidence. And don't take my word for it. If you will, respond listen for his voice. Do you hear it? And so in a moment, we're going to respond in prayer, and then we're going to take an offering and begin to respond in, in grateful generosity, right? Because after all, especially even today, if, if, if this hope is too good to keep a secret, according to verse 17, then, then this gospel is too good for Connection Church to hold for itself, right? And so we're going to sacrificially and generously give to see this gospel be bigger than it could ever be in our own hands. But then we're going to be invited to take the Lord's Supper together. And for those of you who might consider the possibility that Jesus is not dead, I want to proclaim to you a mystery. He will meet you at a table. And he will meet you at a table where he reminds you that the vengeance you deserved, he has borne all his own. And you're invited to a table as a brother, a co-heir, a sister, a sibling with Jesus, not an enemy. And for those of us who respond in faith and receive this gift of God's own Son and His broken body and shed blood, something amazing will happen. For those of you maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I would encourage you, don't, don't partake. Just simply sit back. I invite you to declare the gospel in song with us. But, but this, would, this would be just a very dissatisfying snack. A little piece of bread and some juice. It would be, it'd be really silly. But for those of us who have heard the shepherd's voice, for those of us who have encountered Jesus alive, not to bring condemnation, but to bring hope, that little piece of broken bread and that little bit of juice that we ingest will be sustaining and satisfying to our souls. May we respond in faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your goodness towards us. We thank you so much that death does not get the last word, that hell and the grave are simply props in your play. And you mean to do whatever you will to do for our joy and for your glory. And just as you promised, you by your own will lay your life down and you take it up again. So now we begin to experience this resurrection hope. Maybe for those of us that we've never declared or professed an outward faith, we've never risked ourselves to believe something this powerful, maybe this is the day for the very first time that we would actually hear the voice of Jesus and, and know that it's His because in, in, one, in one fell swoop, he, he reveals that He knows us and yet He fully loves us in spite of ourselves. Maybe, may people in this room hear the voice of Jesus for the first time and respond, I've heard Him, He's called out my name, He's real, He's alive. Maybe for the rest of us, we just simply have defaulted to trusting in other things, explaining the way things work in other ways. Might today be the day we remember that this is the foundation of our being. Since Jesus is raised from the dead, no other voice 
gets a word over me. Not death, not hell, not sin, not shame, not condemnation, but now in Christ we are received as sons and daughters of the Most High God. May we now meet at the Father's table and sit by our brother Jesus. Amen.